Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 31. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this week's history fun on July 22nd, 2021, from a secure, undisclosed location just outside Tupper Lake, New York. The Adirondacks are a great place to spend a bit of summer. And the background noise that leaks through the do-it-myself editing will be a bit different than usual. By the way, about that editing, I occasionally commit oral typos in which I garble or skip or insert words when I record my script or go off script. I usually pick them up in editing and then either fix them or decide they don't matter enough to fix. Last week, I had a bit of a doozy that somehow I did not hear while editing. I said that Pedro Menendez offered the Jesuits going to the Chesapeake 100,000 soldiers. I hope it was obvious to attentive listeners that number was, well, a thousand times the mere 100 soldiers Menendez actually proposed. Oh, well, you don't come here for our network quality production values. At least not yet. We've been mucking around with the Spanish in North America for some months now, and have reached the year 1572 when the Spanish Jesuits tried and failed to establish a mission at the mouth of the Chesapeake. That was as far north as Spain tried to settle on the Atlantic coast and very near the eventual site of the first sustained English colony at Jamestown. By 1572, England was firmly in Protestant hands, had its own ambitions for overseas expansion, and was increasingly working to constrain Spanish power by formal and informal means without starting a war it would probably lose. Elizabeth I was on the throne and had been for 13 years, and she had surrounded herself with a group of advisors who were very much concerned with extending English power into the world at large. The question is, how did England get to that point? This week's episode, titled England in the 1500s and the Rise of the Merchant Adventurers, rolls us back in time to get to that very question. England was quite late to the North American party. It ultimately established the most enduring and therefore consequential settlements. An overview of England of the 1500s, economically, politically, and geopolitically, is useful, even essential, to understanding how English North America unfolded. Yes, I know that I promised that we'd talk about Francis Drake, who for my money is one of the real giants of the story, and we will. But first, we will take a close look at kings and sheep, and not in the way that you're thinking. This being a family podcast, I must request that you keep your puerile thoughts to yourself. My main reference for this episode is a very interesting book by John Butman and Simon Target, New World, Inc., The Making of America by England's Merchant Adventurers. It is excellent, and if you like the intersection of business and history, as I very much do, you will find it a bracing read. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out yourself, and so that Butman and Target cut me some slack over my fair use excerpts. To do this right, we have to go all the way back to the 1490s. No worries, we'll regain the lost ground in just a few minutes. Those of you who have listened to our episodes on Columbus, or who already know a lot about Columbus, will recall that he shopped his proposed venture all over Europe, looking for some king somewhere to fund his venture. 
While Isabella of Castile kept Columbus both warm and on ice, the future discoverer sent his mapmaker brother Bartholomew to pitch Henry VII, King of England. Henry turned him down for reasons lost to time, but when Columbus hit paydirt, both figuratively and literally, Henry found himself his own Italian navigator, John Cabot, and in 1497 dispatched him to look for a northwest passage to Asia. Cabot found Newfoundland and claimed it for England. Henry VII authorized a second mission from which Cabot did not return, and then began a long hiatus in English exploration. When Henry VII died in 1509, his son, Henry VIII, showed no real interest in exploration per se. Henry VIII's principal foreign policy concerns were the recovery of lost English territories in France, in the feudal pursuit of which he exhausted England's treasury. Henry would reign until his death in 1547. His sickly nine-year-old son, Edward VI, succeeded him in England was ruled by a regency council. When Edward died at age 15, Henry's fanatically Catholic daughter, Mary Tudor, now Mary I, took over in 1553. She would reign only five years, but they were tumultuous. Mary married the crown prince of Spain, the man who would become Philip II, and burned hundreds of English Protestants at the stake. In late 1558, Bloody Mary would die unexpectedly, and her brilliant half-sister Elizabeth I became queen. She would rule beyond the turn of the next century. If it weren't for Elizabeth, the English might never have colonized North America. Or maybe they would have. I suppose that depends on whether you think economic and geopolitical interests determine history, or whether you subscribe to the view that it is great men, by which we include great women, who do. Without deciding that ancient question, in a near future episode, we're going to spend some time with Elizabeth because she was critical to the English project in North America. So what about these sheep? By the mid-1500s, there were 11 million sheep in England, compared to a human population of 3 million or less. They grazed everywhere, roaming from village common to manor land to small leaseholds and back again. The wet and cool climate of England grows grass like nobody's business, and sheep love grass. Under those ideal conditions, the sheep of England grew a fine yet dense wool that could be manufactured into spectacularly useful cloth. English merchants, eventually protected under a royal monopoly and consolidated under the company of merchant adventurers, these are different than the merchant adventurers mentioned in the title of this episode, had been exporting raw wool and then cloth for more than 300 years, trading it for all the necessities and luxuries that the nearby city of Antwerp had to offer. Antwerp was said to gather as many as 3,000 merchant vessels in its port at a given time, from all over the world. It was the most important trading city in Europe. It wanted English woolen cloth. Those sheep grazing all over England were at the top of a supply chain that formed the backbone of English prosperity. Many of England's wealthiest families built their fortune in the woolen cloth game. As is always true, economies and markets change. In the first half of the 1500s, several big influences combined to weaken the English economy and threaten the financial well-being of its prosperous merchants. 
As the kingdom's finances suffered, the crown itself followed a confusing path of succession. And the country flipped between Protestant and Catholic at a time when getting that wrong meant eternal damnation. The signs of economic weakness and social unrest were everywhere, even if they were not well understood. In 1549, a young English intellectual, Sir Thomas Smith, left his position with the boy king Edward's privy council and repaired to Eton College, then is now one of England's great boarding schools. Public schools to them, curiously enough. At Eton, he wrote a book, A Discourse of the Commonweal of This Realm of England, which is now regarded as one of the great works of economic and social criticism of the age. At age 35, Smith had kept his eyes open. He saw the endemic and growing poverty that others in his class did not. He identified two principal causes. The first was inflation, which had driven consumer prices up by 50% in the last 40 years. This Smith blamed on Henry VIII, who spent down the treasury and loaded it with debt to pay for endless foreign wars and his own extravagant lifestyle. When Henry could no longer tax, borrow, or sell off confiscated monastic lands to pay for everything, he resorted to the printing money of his day. Henry debased the currency by cutting the precious metal and coins he issued. Since each new coin at any given denomination was worth less in silver or gold than previously, anyone who sold anything demanded more coins, driving up nominal prices. Inflation impoverished everybody who could not command higher prices, especially the people who sold only their own labor. The other change was the growing practice of land enclosure. Let's turn to Butman and Target's description. England's open lands, the island was a rural patchwork of vast fields and manorial estates, had long done double duty. Generally, arable land was tilled by one owner or tenant, but after the harvest or during an off-season, it was available to everyone and was typically employed for the grazing of sheep. For landowners who sought relief from the damaging effects of inflation, the temptation was to convert some or all of their arable land into pasture for their own animals to graze exclusively. This involved enclosing their fields with wooden fences, rows of stones, and mounds of earth, or hedges, and thereby removing them from common use. Such enclosure made good economic sense for the landowners. Wool for cloth was in high demand, and the cost of grazing sheep was considerably less than the cost of growing grain. Thomas Tusser, an old Etonian Norfolk farmer, reckoned that enclosure made land three times more profitable than when it was made available to everyone. But the effects on local communities could be disastrous. Smith noted that a plot of land that once employed one or two hundred people would, after enclosure, serve only the owner and a few shepherds. Without employment, or even land to grow food or graze small flocks, entire villages were abandoned. In the summer of 1549, as Smith was writing his book, an anti-enclosure rebellion rose up in Norfolk. A mob had gathered to protest enclosure among the local landowners. One of them, a fairly small freeholder named Robert Kett, agreed with the rebels and stepped up to lead them. A small handful of men turned into an army of not very peaceful protesters. 
perhaps 20,000 at its peak, ranging across Norfolk, destroying hedges and fences and ransacking villages as they went. They seized the county seat of Norwich, grabbed the local gentry to hold as hostages in the woods, and drew up a petition of 22 grievances to be presented to King Edward. Their demands included an end to land enclosure, a laundry list of other reforms including rent regulation, revisions to fishing rights, the duties of priests, and so forth. They said that despite their grievances, they were loyal subjects of the king, and their only goal was justice. Professions of loyalty notwithstanding, the regency and the privy council regarded Ket's rebellion as a huge threat to the peace of the nation, and, no doubt, their own class interests. They sent in royal soldiers to quash the rebellion and bring its leaders to justice. Ket's men successfully repelled the first overconfident attempt, so the regency sent in Sir John Dudley, an accomplished veteran of Henry's wars in France and now Lord Admiral responsible for England's navy. Dudley marched a huge force, including 6,000 men-at-arms and 1,500 cavalry, to Norfolk. There, he sent emissaries to Ket and offered leniency if the rebels would surrender. Ket flipped Dudley, the figurative bird, and the fight was on. Dudley's men cut the rebels down like wheat in a field, killing 3,500 in a single day. Ket fled, and the remaining resistance vanished. The next day, Dudley rounded up most of the leaders and hung them. Ket was caught eventually, and after the usual stint in the Tower of London, was executed in December 1549. Edward's regency was now in crisis, having lost the support of the landed gentry. Dudley, the hero who put down Ket's rebellion, took over as Lord President. Now back to Butman and Target. Dudley's tasks were nothing less than to restore confidence in Edward's reign, rescue England from economic calamity, and resolve the damaging social divisions that were being exposed by land enclosure. His job was made immeasurably harder with an abrupt and seemingly catastrophic collapse in foreign demand for woolen cloth. In 1550, as he took over as Lord President, the cloth trade was buoyant, and total exports numbered... 132,767 cloths, love the detail there, as lengths of fabric were called. But in 1551, this slumped to 112,710 cloths, falling to 84,968 cloths the following year. At a time when the monarchy was already heavily in debt, the decline in demand seemed to rule out any hope that royal loans could be paid back with customs revenue from the cloth trade. That is, by the way, why we know exactly the number of cloths, because each one was taxed. The situation was made worse by another development. In 1549, Antwerp collapsed as a center for Europe's spice trade. For 50 years, Portuguese merchants had traded spices in the Flemish port. But now the king of Portugal, John III, had decided that with sufficient silver pouring into Lisbon from Spanish silver mines in America, he did not need to trade in Antwerp. This disruption left English merchants facing a double hit, the decline of their export business in cloth and the loss of their import business in spices and associated luxuries from Asia. 
To deal with all of this, Dudley rounded up an extraordinary group of accomplished and almost impossibly young men to advise him. These included the important merchant Thomas Gresham, age 34, the alleged author of Gresham's Law, that bad money drives out the good, something he'd know a little about, given Henry's debasement of the currency. Thomas Smith, age 39, author of the aforementioned treatise on England's social and economic condition, and the brilliant mathematician and scientist John D., age 25, who would go on to become a forceful advocate for English exploration and would coin the term British Empire. Finally, Dudley's Secretary of State, William Cecil, age 32, who had been tutored by Thomas Smith at Cambridge, turned out to be an extraordinarily able administrator and deft politician and would in the end exert tremendous influence on the expansion of England beyond its borders. Dudley and his team confronted the crisis of the early 1550s with some specific reforms, including reform of the coinage and calculated protectionism that increased the profitability of the waning woolen and cloth business. Things improved a little, but not enough. Now, in 1516, Sir Thomas More had published a speculative novel in Latin with the title Utopia, a neologism, that would be a made-up word, combining the Greek words for know and place. The novel revolves around a character named Raphael Hithlodius, or something like that, who in Utopia's backstory had traveled with Amerigo Vespucci, the Florentine explorer who sailed the coast of South America shortly after Columbus, and after whom we named the two continents of the Western Hemisphere. Raphael lives for five years on an imaginary New World island called Utopia, which is essentially a foil for a lengthy discussion about the poor state of affairs in England, which Moore portrays as dystopian. Moore's Utopia is the first imagined socialist paradise, with lots of collective ownership and equality, and some slavery. Per Butman and Target, Moore was the first Englishman to envision, in print at least, the enormous potential that the New World had for remaking society. Well, in 1551, the crafty William Cecil arranged for Utopia to be translated into English and prominently attached his name. The publication of the English translation seems to have been intended to inspire the learned English elites as they debated how to solve England's many problems. They became broadly interested in exploration for the first time since John Cabot had failed to come back from his second voyage 50 years before. At the same time, the merchant class had concluded that the long-term viability of their cloth industry depended on finding big new markets outside of Europe. There was only one known option, known as Cathay to the English of the 16th century. We call it China. It is almost impossible to overstate the economic power of China in the 16th century. By 1500, it accounted for 25% of global economic output, and it was the source of luxury goods in high demand at every point west. Chinese products reach England and other Western European countries through a tortuous network of trade routes. At that time, Arab Muslim traders had a virtual monopoly on trade with the Far East and the Venetians monopolized trade with the Arabs. 
By the time spices or silk or porcelain reached England, they had been marked up ten times or more. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that Portugal and Spain began their age of exploration to break the Muslim stranglehold on trade with Asia. Portugal sought and achieved a route around Africa, and Spain invested in Columbus, who proposed to travel west to Japan and China. Both eventually succeeded, with Spain capturing the vast wealth of the New World along the way. None of this helped England, though whose merchants now confronted an Iberian monopoly instead of an Arab. The English needed their own route to China. John Dudley knew who to call. He sent for one of Europe's greatest seafaring experts, Sebastian Cabot, son of John Cabot. In 1552, Sebastian was now 78 years old and too old to brave blue water exploration in person. More than 40 years before, however, in the service of the outward-looking Henry VII, Sebastian had led an expedition that had seemingly located the entrance to Canada's Hudson Bay, which was thought to be the best prospect for a northwest passage across the top of the world to China. When he got back, his sponsoring king had died, and Henry VIII had assumed the throne. The new king's heart was invested in the recovery of lost English land in France and other meddling in Europe, not exploration. Sebastian went to Spain and spent the second half of his life developing maps, gathering documents, and generally supporting the project of Spanish exploration and colonization. Eventually, though, Sebastian's personal reasons for staying in Spain fell away, and he had returned to England in 1547. Now back to Butman and Target. Sometime in late 1552, a group of merchants, courtiers, and intellectuals, in consultation with Sebastian Cabot, drew up plans for a new commercial venture and gave it a rather glorious name. The Mystery Company and Fellowship of Merchant Adventurers for the Discovery of Regions, Dominions, Islands, and Places Unknown. Its purpose was to enable them to lay their heads together and give their judgments and to provide things requisite and profitable for the venture. The mystery, i.e. at the end rather than why, was hardly the first English company. Many of London's medieval guilds, which were associations of merchants who came together to protect and promote their particular trade, had gradually evolved into livery companies. These enjoyed significant privileges granted by the crown, and, as their name suggests, they were distinguished by, among other things, their ceremonial dress. The twelve richest of these companies, known as the Great Twelve and led by the Worshipful Company of Mercers, were among the most powerful institutions in the country. Through their apprenticeship systems, they determined who could enter their trade. They set standards for quality. The goldsmiths, for example, operated from a hall where they stamped gold they deemed to be of good quality, hence the term hallmark. I find it amusing to think that a banal line of greeting cards and a tediously gloppy network on cable television get their names from a medieval English guild. Branding is older than we sometimes imagine. Back to Butman and Target. 
The mystery had some characteristics of these traditional livery companies. The word mystery from the Latin ministerium and the Anglo-Norman word mestier, meaning art or calling, signified an occupational group, an organization of professionals in a certain discipline or trade. But the term was becoming an anachronism even at this time and obscures the truly transformational character of the new company. Unlike the Great Twelve, the mystery was not so focused on a single homogenous group. In fact, it brought together in a new way two pillars of England's ruling elite, merchants and courtiers. But what also distinguished the mystery was its corporate structure. It was established with what has been called a revolutionary new form of business organization, arguably the world's first joint stock company and certainly the first in England. So now, at the end of 1552, we have a well-capitalized corporation backed by England's leading men, with the explicit purpose to discover new regions, dominions, islands, and places unknown. England had its first bureaucratic and financial imperative to explore. And so it did. The stories of the mystery and various successor enterprises are in and of themselves fascinating and in theory outside the prescribed boundary of this podcast because they wouldn't involve the territory of today's United States for decades to come. Rules, however, are made to be broken. So I'll tell one such story because it shows how imperial ambition in England, which in turn would lead to North America, began to flourish in the 1550s. Being both well-funded and very connected, the mystery took great care in preparing for its first expedition to China. It needed a leader, because unlike most Spanish expeditions, this was organized top-down, with a purpose and investors coming before an actual team. It ultimately recruited a young military man from a good family, that being an essential precondition in those days, named Sir Hugh Willoughby. Willoughby had distinguished himself in combat, and most importantly, he wanted the job. His main shortcoming was that he had no experience at seafaring, so mystery needed a navigator. Sebastian Cabot identified a young and brilliant man named Richard Chancellor for that role and sent him to John Dee to prepare the best possible plan for reaching China by sea. Mystery also commissioned Richard Eden, another of Cecil's promising young men, to write a treatise on everything known about China and how to get there. The working assumption would be that the first expedition would look to find a Northwest Passage over North America, a supposed entrance to which Sebastian Cabot had identified many years before. After working together for weeks, Dee and Chancellor emerged with a new idea, sailing to the Northeast and over Eurasia. The company endorsed the route, acquired the necessary ships, and supplied them with 18 months of food and other necessities. Sebastian Cabot wrote a detailed ordinance for the conduct of the voyage, capturing everything he knew and recommended from his years of studying Spanish exploration. Cabot's instructions included a requirement for detailed record-keeping, careful and constant monitoring of supplies and the rationing of them, and sound advice for the treatment of the crew and any natives encountered on the way. On May 20, 1553, the expedition left the Thames estuary for northern Norway and beyond, with Willoughby in command of the fleet, and Chancellor, the only navigator with a clue, 
in command of one of the three ships. The mission would end in triumph and tragedy. As it crested the northern coast of Norway, a storm blew the fleet apart. They had anticipated that this might happen and had carefully planned a rendezvous at an island castle off the northeastern Arctic coast of Norway, a place then called the Ward House, just over the western edge of Russia's border today. Chancellor found his way there with no problem, but Willoughby and his two ships sailed around cluelessly and eventually took shelter in a small bay along the Russian coast. Not that any of them knew they were on the Russian coast. They were found dead two years later, frozen solid and preserved as if they had died suddenly at their stations. Historians believe they died where they sat of carbon monoxide poisoning from fires burned to stay warm and then froze at their desks, on their hammocks, and wherever else they happened to be. Even dogs were frozen solid. Chancellor turned out to have both great courage and creativity let his ship on, eventually pulling into the Russian port at today's Archangle. He and his men eventually made their way inland, first to an upriver trading town where they traded for exotic Russian luxuries, and then traveled more than a thousand miles to Moscow, where they were greeted warmly by Ivan the Terrible, who did not treat the English terribly at all. Do you know how we keep warm in Russia? Oh, ho, 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 ho. I can guess, maybe. We play chess. I guessed wrong. This was the first official contact between the English and the Russians in 500 years, since before the Norman invasion of 1066 and all that. And no European country had sent a diplomat to Moscow in more than 30 years. Chancellor inked a trade deal with Ivan and pledged to return, putting England in the pole position with a vast country in the east that would have lots of great stuff to trade for warm woolen cloth, even if it wasn't China. Chancellor got back to England about a year after he had departed. He learned that Willoughby and ships had vanished. He also learned that Edward VI had died, that the fanatically Catholic Mary Tudor was on the throne, and that she was to marry Philip of Spain, soon to be Philip II. Mary had executed John Dudley for siding with the Protestants who tried to prevent her accession. Many of the leaders of the mystery had been Protestant and allies of Dudley, and many of them fled the country. Those who remained had to mine their P's and Q's, as my grandmother would have said, with great diligence. William Cecil, Dudley's administrative genius, threaded the political needle and managed to survive and even thrive, even though it meant he had to take Spanish lessons. John Dee also avoided execution. Both would go on to serve Mary Tudor's great successor, the Protestant Elizabeth I, who had become queen in late 1558. Chancellor's news and agreement with Ivan, however, was too important to ignore. Because of bureaucratic glitches, Dudley had failed to arrange for Edward VI to sign the mystery's patent before he died. This meant that from the English perspective, the mystery did not have the rights it thought it had. So its surviving investors went to Parliament and in early 1555 obtained, with Mary and Philip's blessing, a charter for a new company, the Company of Merchant Adventurers for the Discovery of Regions, Dominions, Islands, and Places Unknown. The word mystery, increasingly archaic even in 1555, was dropped. Sebastian Cabot was its honorary chairman for life. 
The new company commissioned a seal with a ship pointed toward the east, no doubt designed to assuage Philip of Spain's concerns that it might intrude on the Western Hemisphere, and it obtained a royal monopoly on trade with Russia. Mary and Philip even wrote a letter to Ivan, and not knowing a damn thing about Russian, had it translated into Greek, Polish, and Italian. Surely Ivan would have somebody in his court who knew one of those languages. Chancellor was put in charge of the next mission to Russia and left in 1555. The merchant adventurers, known informally as the Moscovy or Russia Company, had again planned meticulously and sent along various accomplished English merchants, including George Killingworth, who sported a thick blonde beard supposedly five feet two inches in length. Now back to Butman and Target. Chancellor's delegation reached Moscow in early October 1555. Once again, the English were cordially received. The Tsar ensured that they were housed near the Kremlin and took the time to dine with them. When Killingworth stepped forward to drink a toast, his five-foot beard fell across the Tsar's table. Intrigued, Ivan took the beard in his hand and displayed it to the man sitting with him, Makarius, the Metropolitan of Moscow, the leading figure in the Russian Orthodox Church, considered to be God's spiritual officer. Makarius, who himself possessed a fine beard, proclaimed that Killingworth was God's gift. Lest you doubt the possibility of a five-foot beard, note that the longest on record exceeded 17 feet. As measured in 1927 on the corpse, of Hans Nielsen Langseth, a Norwegian Iowan. Go Hawkeyes. Anyway, Killingworth and his beard would stay on in Moscow after Chancellor returned to England in the summer of 1556 with Russia's new ambassador as one of his passengers. The Moscovy Company would keep a permanent delegation in Moscow and grow in wealth and influence over the coming years, but not without one final tragedy. When Chancellor arrived at Northeast Scotland later that year, a huge storm blew up and ripped his ship from its moorings. The ship went down with its immensely valuable cargo of furs and other Russian luxuries, and many of his men died. Chancellor heroically saved the life of the Russian ambassador at the cost of his own, and that made all the difference. The Moscovy Company had lost its profit on the expedition and its most important officer, but it had its monopoly, an office in Moscow, and an ambassador from Russia. England's great merchant empire was on its way. Only two years later, Mary would be dead, Philip would be gone, and Elizabeth I would be on the throne, with William Cecil and John Dee serving as her most trusted advisors. During the first 20 years of her reign, England would continue to push overseas while managing geopolitics and religious conflict in Europe. English imperialists would, with great effort, lock down their control of Ireland and learn a lot about colonization in the effort. In the mid-1570s, merchant investors would back an explorer named Martin Frobisher, who would make two attempts to find a northwest passage to China, sailing into Hudson's Bay and otherwise poking around northern Canada. He did not find it and could not have sailed it in any case, but neither did he prove that there wasn't one. Like the Spanish belief in a short route to the Pacific, perhaps at Pamlico Sound or up the Chesapeake, 
the English faith in a Northwest Passage did not die with Frobisher's failure. In the 1560s, as religious war was raging in France and as the Spanish were slaughtering French Protestants at Fort Caroline, and as the Moscovy Company investors were getting rich trading for Russian furs, a young man and devoted Protestant named Francis Drake from Tavistock in western England, just east of the Cornwall border, would sell the small coastal bark which he had inherited from an old man with no family to whom he had been apprenticed. He would join the crew of an old family friend, the notorious English pirate John Hawkins, and travel with him on illicit trading missions to the coast of Africa, the Caribbean, and the Spanish Main. We told the story of the most important of those missions in our episode 21, A Pirate's Tale, which you might go listen to if you haven't already. Francis Drake would go on to become the first person to claim territory in today's United States for England, the founder of piracy against the Spanish and the Caribbean, and England's greatest naval hero of the age. Thank you again for listening. This being a labor of love, your supported reviews on Apple and other podcast pages are very much appreciated. Please follow us on our Facebook page, the History of the Americans podcast. Subscribe in your podcast app and tell all your friends on your social media platform of choice.